tell you, my friends, some of these experts, so-called experts, just astound me with their naivete, their myopic view of the world, and how they overly simplify the equation that sits before us in terms of the upcoming presidential election in 2024, how serious it is, and uh, what we need to do in order to ensure the future of this republic. I somehow wonder how they even got to be called experts. I'm going to cite one on today's broadcast and speak about it, and then I want to get to another matter. But I think, in fact, I think I'm going to get to the other matter first, and then we're going to come back and save the analysis of the presidential election for last. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do do so in one of several easy ways. You can either go to the Google Play Store, the iTunes App Store, download the free Podbean app. Podbean is our hosting service. And then search on that app for The Jamie Dury Show. In the alternative, you can just use your native podcast aggregator app that comes with your Android or iTunes or Apple device and simply search out The Jamie Dury Show that way. Regardless of which way you elect to subscribe, you'll be able to leave comments, reviews. We desperately need both, so please give us a five-star review. We try and give you a good show. And share the show with other people. Recommend us to your friends. Uh, The show will grow, and we'll be able to do more for you. So, before we get to the experts who seem to be unable to separate the forest from the trees, I want to speak briefly about a Supreme Court decision that was rendered the other day, and it involves a topic that I was always very interested in, and it involved an injustice that has been visited on citizens of several states, mostly blue states, that I always felt was a crime and illegal, and I'm glad to see that the issue has finally made its way to the Supreme Court And the Supreme Court has spoken strongly on it with members of both the conservative wing and the liberal wing, Judge Ketanji Jackson, the newest one, uh, in joining with Neil Gorsuch in his concurring separate opinion um, that was written by Roberts for the majority. So it's interesting to note that they sided with them. So what is this monumental decision? Well... It may be not as widely known as it should be that the government has been stealing the equity in people's homes from them. Let me explain. You do know that if you don't pay your taxes, eventually the municipality that you owe the taxes to or the state will seize your home and auction it off and use the proceeds to pay your tax bill. That most people know. What is not known, or what is far less known, is that when the government does this, if they fetch a sum of money in exchange for your home when they auction it off, that is greater than the sum of money that you owe in terms of back taxes and penalties, they don't refund the money to you. They simply keep it. That's right. Let's say you have a home that's worth uh, $400,000, and you owe 100000 in back taxes. The county, the state, whatever, will seize the home, and then they will auction it off. And they don't really care 
what they auction it off for, because all they're trying to do is recover the money that they say you owe them. So they'll do it as a distressed sale and blow it out quick just to get the money. So they'll take your $350,000 home and they'll auction it off, let's say, for $175,000 or $200,000. Take the $100,000 that you owe them in back taxes and keep the other $100,000, thereby depriving it from you. Now, how is it that the government gets to keep $200,000 of your money when you only owe them 100000 Well, that was the question raised in this very, very significant case that went to the Supreme Court. And in this case, the Supreme Court sided with a 94-year-old woman whose home equity was seized by the county. It took place in Hennepin County, Minnesota, a blue state. And homeowner Geraldine Tyler 94 years old, and I thank God that she was able to live long enough to see her victory and didn't have it carried out by her estate after her death. Uh, But she did get satisfaction from the Supreme Court. Now, I first became aware of this issue that the counties in America do this, listening to the Sean Hannity show many years ago when he became aware that in his county on Long Island, is Nassau and Suffolk, that they do this regularly. No surprise, New York is a blue state. And even though those are, so, so, so to speak, red counties, uh, they still do it. But it happens a lot in blue states. So what happened in this particular case at Barr? Uh, an entity known as the Pacific Legal Foundation. The case came after they released a report uh, late in 2022. Uh, and in this report, they said that 12 states and the District of Columbia allow local governments and private investors to seize dramatically more than what is owed from homeowners who fall behind on property taxes. Now, unfortunately, in this article that I'm reading from the Times here, um, they don't name the 12 states. I can imagine which states they are. I bet you New York is one, of course. Minnesota is another. California has to be another. New Jersey is probably another. Uh, Massachusetts is probably in a Connecticut. You can probably figure out which are the states, but be that as it may. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the decision, uh, and it was called Tyler versus Hennepin County, Minnesota. It was issued yesterday. In making a biblical reference, Justice Roberts, in his majority opinion, quoted, the taxpayer must render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but no more. Now, Christina Martin was the attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation, and she represented Geraldine Tyler. She told the court uh, during the oral arguments, which took place back in April, that local government should not be allowed to take the full value of a home as payment for much smaller property tax debts. Now, this is a very interesting foundation. It's a non-profit public interest law firm that challenges government abuses. They try and arrest the power of government and curtail unlawful exercises of government power. Now, Minnesota state law allows counties, or they did anyway until now, allowed counties to retain windfalls at the expense of property owners. 
and apparently from a period of 2014 to 2020, about 1,200 residents of the state of Minnesota lost their homes along with the equity they held for debts that averaged 8% of the home's value. So it isn't hard to figure out what's going on here. 8%. So let's work with that just to give you a real-world equation. Let's assume for easy math the home is worth half a million dollars. 10% would be 50,000. So 8% would be about 40,000. So for a $40,000 debt, the state is allowed to seize and auction off your half a million dollar home for whatever they wish. Recover that $40,000 debt and keep everything in excess. Not a bad business if you can get it. So they know that if they want to get money back quickly, that if they take a half a million dollar home and they blow it out at auction for a quarter of a million, people are going to jump on it. And they're able to recover $40,000 in debt and then keep a $210,000 windfall that should be returned back to the property owner. But they were keeping it. Now, Ms. Tyler owned a modest one-bedroom condominium in Hennepin County. I'm reading right from the article. And she was harassed and frightened near her new home. Nothing to do with the government. I guess the neighborhood wasn't great. There were young thugs. So she moved to an apartment that she rented in a safer neighborhood. But she still maintained ownership of her condo. Now, the rent on her apartment kind of like stretched her ability to pay. It took her to the limit. And she began to fall behind on the condo's property tax bills because obviously she was definitely going to pay the rent first on the um, apartment in which she was living because she needed to have a roof overhead and she was scared to death to return back to the neighborhood where her condominium was located. So she accumulated about 2300 in back taxes. But how about this? The county gave 12700 in penalties, interest, and costs, an amount almost six times what she owed in taxes. So the county finally seized her condo. Now, the condo at the time was valued at $93,000. So let's figure it out. $12,700 in penalties plus $2,300 in taxes owed is a total of $15,000. But instead of keeping the $15,000 when they sold the condo, the county sold the condo for $40,000, just blew it out quick, and kept the $25,000 extra for themselves. So she argued through her attorneys that there's a taking clause in the Fifth Amendment uh, by seizing property in excess of the debt. And she argued that the government violated that takings clause uh, in the Fifth Amendment by doing what they did. Now, she filed through the court. It's amazing how many lower courts did not agree with with her and took the uh, position that the government was right. Tells you what side most of the courts are on and why the Supreme Court is such an important position. It is the the court of last resort for people. In any event, the Eighth Circuit, she went to the district court. The Eighth Circuit found that the legal forfeiture of the property extinguishes uh, property owner's interest. That means that once you get 
your forfeiture, you no longer are entitled to the value of your home. That, to me, is just a fancy way of the government robbing people of their property. That's like um, appropriation. And in this case, misappropriation, in my opinion. But according to the Supreme Court, keeping the windfall was a step too far. The principle that a government is not allowed to take from a taxpayer more than he or she owes is based in English law and goes back at least as far as the Magna Carta of twenty of twelve fifteen. Excuse me. You're talking about almost a thousand years ago. Actually, what am I saying? Over a thousand years ago. No, not over a thousand years ago. We're talking about eight hundred some odd years ago. And Supreme Court precedents have recognized for a very lengthy period of time that a taxpayer is entitled to the surplus in excess of the debt owed. Quoting Justice Roberts here, the takings clause was designed to bar government from forcing some people alone to bear public burdens, which in all fairness and justice should be borne by the public as a whole. A taxpayer who loses her $40,000 house to the state to fulfill a $15,000 tax debt has made a far greater contribution to the public funds or the public fisc than she owed. Minnesota law recognizes in many other contexts that a property owner is entitled to the surplus in excess of her debt, meaning that he used Minnesota's own law and their own recognition of this fact against them. If a bank forecloses on a home because the homeowner fails to pay the mortgage, the homeowner is entitled to the surplus from the sale. Of course. Of course one would expect that. So why then does the government of Minnesota feel that It's okay for them to compel a bank or a private lending institution to return the surplus after they seize a home when people have defaulted on their mortgage and return the surplus back to the homeowner. But when it's their turn to foreclose, that they they get to keep it all. This is typical of the government. Rules for thee, not for me. In collecting all other taxes, Minnesota protects taxpayers' right to surplus. So if a taxpayer falls behind on income tax and the state confiscates and sells the property, state law provides that any surplus must be returned to the owner. The same rule is followed regarding arrears of personal property tax, such as for a car, and real property tax. In Tyler's case, quote, the state now makes an exception only for itself and only for taxes on real property. But property rights cannot be so easily manipulated, wrote Justice Roberts. And he cited a case called Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid. It was a 2021 Supreme Court decision that uh, dealt with property rights of an employer against labor organizing rights. And so he wrote that Minnesota may not extinguish a property interest that it recognizes everywhere else to avoid paying just compensation when it is the one doing the taking. In other words, you can't state of Minnesota, say to everyone else who's private and collects on a debt, hey, when you sell that property, you have to give back the excess to the person you are having the lien on. But when you do it, it's okay. You can keep it. No. He says, no, you can't do it. 
Now, the attorneys for Tyler also made the argument that Minnesota, in doing this, had run afoul of the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution, but because the court accepted her Fifth Amendment argument, we need not decide whether she also alleged an excessive fine under the Eighth Amendment. In other words, the court, in the common law style system of law that we have on this justice and this country, where we don't have a code type of law, we have case law and there's interpretations and there's precedent and so forth. Once they were able to make a determination on the Fifth Amendment claim that made Ms. Tyler whole and return to her the surplus that the government received when they sold her home to collect the debt. They did not need to reach the issue as to whether or not they also violated the Eighth Amendment. Now, perhaps there'll be another case in the future that will allow them to do this. Um, But Justice Neil Gorsuch filed a concurring opinion. Now, the attorney for Ms. Tyler was ecstatic over the uh, opinion of the Supreme Court in the majority uh, that wrote that was written by Justice Roberts, stating that she thought it was a great victory for property rights in the United States, and stated that the decision affirms that property rights are fundamental and don't depend solely on state law. And the ruling today makes clear that home equity theft is not only unjust, but it's unconstitutional. But Gorsuch, filing a concurring opinion, in which he was joined by Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, and I'm very glad that she did that. It shows that she's got a heart and that she knows that this is an overreach of government. Um, Gorsuch wrote that he agreed with the majority opinion written by Roberts, but he also made a point of pointing out that what was done to Tyler uh, may also constitute an economic penalty and therefore violates the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment, which was her second argument that the majority opinion never reached. Quote from Gorsuch, economic penalties imposed to deter willful noncompliance with the law are fines by any other name, and the Constitution has something to say about them. They cannot be excessive. And it's pretty obvious that if you're trying to collect a $15,000 debt and you seize someone's $93,000 condo, and you blow it out at the rate of $40,000 as a distressed sale, take the $15,000 and keep the $25,000 surplus. That's got excessive written all over it. So I'm glad, very glad, uh, that the court made this decision, and hopefully this puts this to end. Now, Dan Rogan happens to be the assistant administrator for Hennepin County and auditor. He made a comment on the decision. Listen to this comment. Hennepin County represented the interests of Minnesota and many other states with laws that transfer title of abandoned property to reduce the burden to the public. Counties in Minnesota have faithfully administered the state's property forfeiture laws for well over a century. Based on today's decision, which found Minnesota's law unconstitutional. Minnesota's property tax forfeiture laws must be revised. 
Hennepin County will work closely with the Minnesota legislature to create a process that is consistent with the Supreme Court's decision. Yeah, you damn right you should. That property wasn't abandoned. She just moved out of there. She didn't abandon it. She, she couldn't afford to live there anymore uh, because she was being threatened by toughs in the neighborhood. So she moved to a safer neighborhood, and she just couldn't pay the freight on both. woman was 94 years old. And again, thank God that the good Lord allowed this woman to live till 94 so she could see the fruits of her victory and know that she was vindicated and not go to her grave feeling violated and overcome and, and wronged. So kudos to the Supreme Court, kudos to uh, Justice Roberts on this and Justice Neil Gorsuch, and a big kudo to Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson for joining with Gorsuch and deciding uh, as she did. It speaks very well of her, in my opinion, and I hope to see more such departures from what the, uh, the liberal members of the court would have written. There's no mention in this article on what the vote was. I do not know if this was a unanimous decision or if there was some uh, conflict from the uh, from the liberal wing of the court. I'm going to see if we can if we can find out about that. Okay, I see it now. There is a PDF included of the entire decision. I flicked through it. It does not mention what the vote was, but it doesn't show a dissenting opinion. Uh, and very. It's very, very rare that judges will dissent without writing a dissenting opinion uh, or concurring with another dissenting opinion written by a different justice. So unless I'm mistaken, it would appear that the court voted nine to nothing this way, but that Justice Gorsuch wanted to write a separate concurring opinion, agreeing with everything that Justice Roberts wrote for the majority, but also wanting to point out this Eighth Amendment issue. And in that specific concurring opinion, not dissenting opinion, Justice Katanji Jackson Brown joined. So it looks like all nine of them sided on the Fifth Amendment issue, and two of them took the time to make a point of uh, mentioning the Eighth Amendment issue. So uh, kudos to the Supreme Court on this one, long overdue. And I'm glad uh, that they did it. Now, the other issue I wanted to speak about is, um, you remember a few weeks ago, I did a show and I explained how many car manufacturers were trying to eliminate AM radios from your cars. Uh, And I don't believe because AM radio is going into technological obsolescence, in any way, shape, or form, as the reason for them wanting to do this. It's true, AM radio is not the home for music like it used to be when I was growing up as a kid. We all had our little pocket uh, transistor radios. We used to listen to AM and F, uh, mostly AM. With the advent of FM and the um, proliferation of FM radios in home stereos and cars, people began to listen to FM because the signal is much clearer, uh, less static-free, has higher fidelity, and music sounds a lot better on FM. But when it comes to talk, the enhanced fidelity of FM isn't as critical. You can get decent talk on AM as well. 
So talk radio saved AM radio. And when you take the time to look at the overwhelming liberal nature of the mainstream media, the cable news networks, even Fox News increasingly, the network news, ABC, CBS, ABC, and all other forms of media, print media, like the New York Times and so forth, uh, everything is left of center. Talk radio has been the home of conservative talk. Bob Grant was one of the first who started, but the quintessential example of a conservative talk radio host has to be the late, great uh, Rush Limbaugh. And I listened to that man religiously. There was nobody like him. Uh, He was unique. He had a depth and a logic and a perception that was unreal. And I've still been a fan of AM radio, but I am at somewhat of a loss as to who I wish to listen to. Now, I've listened to uh, Bernie and Sid, the late uh, Bernie uh, of that great duo who passed away from prostate uh, cancer, but Sid Rosenberg is still up there. Now, I I like his show, but it's not really the deep political analysis that I, I like to hear. I listened to the men who replaced Rush Limbaugh. Uh, from noon to three. But I didn't always listen to Rush's show live, but because Rush had an extensive organization, I subscribed to his website and I used to download the show as a podcast and listen to the show on the way home in the evening and again driving up to my office in the morning. So I would get between the two commutes the entirety of the show. Uh, I don't think you can download the show now if you can, I'm not aware of it, but I have to look into it. And I don't know if it's as, if it's as good uh, like the Rush Limbaugh show was that I'd want to spend every year to, to download it. But there is a man who has a show in the morning, and I sometimes flip back and forth between Sid Rosenberg and him in the morning. He's on from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. You all know him, funny guy, talented man. Joe Piscopo. And we might not think of Joe Piscopo as being a serious radio host, but believe me, he is. And he has a nice way about him when he does it, but he deals with serious issues, deals with military issues. He has Judge Napolitano on very often. He interviews people about a lot of legal issues. This morning, I was driving out to New Jersey. I was taking a long drive, and I was listening to Joe interviewing Ken Cuccinelli, who was the former Virginia Attorney General, and he was the acting Deputy Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security under Donald Trump. He is the founder of the Political Action Committee, the PAC, Never Back Down. And he's been hawking Ron DeSantis and the entry of Ron DeSantis into the presidential race. Now, I don't know why... These people take this position, but he's out there. He goes, you know, I I know I work for Trump. I won't regret it. I've looked at it. And, um, you know, it's really not that tough a call. I mean, you know, uh, DeSantis is the guy. And they're hawking DeSantis, 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 saying that he's the only one who can do it. He doesn't back down. He's a leader. He's better than Trump on certain conservative issues. Stop. 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 
One, DeSantis wouldn't even be the governor of Florida if it were not for Donald Trump. He was a fringe candidate. He was foundering. Trump endorsed him, and he pushed him over the top. He won by half a percentage point. Now, once he got in, he did an admirable job, and he won re-election on his own right, on his own merits. But remember that he's operating in a state that has a much more conservative population than you'll see in Washington, D.C. He's got a much more conservative population, let's say the state of New York. He's got a conservative legislature as well. And so he can get things done more readily. When he goes into Washington, D.C., he was up against those sharks that have been stealing and fleecing the public for decades. He's not going to find it so easy to do all these things and be this knight in shining armor that Ken Cuccinelli and the rest of these would-be hangers-on envision him to be. They also conveniently leave out certain aspects of Ron DeSantis's career. They leave out the fact that he did vote when he was in Congress to make Puerto Rico a state, a move that would give the Democrats definitely two more senators and make it next to impossible for us to retake that chamber. He doesn't tell you about that. He also voted to extend the retirement age to 70. Of course, they'll tell you it was okay because it was a meaningless vote. It was more of a procedural vote and a statement vote. The context under which it took place, it never would have happened. Still, I wouldn't have made that vote, and I certainly would have, wouldn't have voted to make Puerto Rico a state. So uh, Ron DeSantis is not the perfect candidate that you think. He also has another problem with him that people don't want to understand. Once you're elected president, every first-term administration wants the same thing. They want a second term. And because of that, they are compromised to a degree. Other people will tell you, well, they're lame ducks. They can't do anything. Maybe they're lame ducks in their last year or year and a half as Congress stalls them. But that first year, they're not lame ducks. They're going full bore. Now, it will be true that if Donald Trump were to be reelected, we've never had a person that has been in office, out of office, and reelected again. I'm not talking about Grover Cleveland in the 1800s. Since the amendment to the Constitution was made that limited the term of a president to 10 years, two terms and two years of, a, of another term, in case a vice president takes over, like... Like when Kennedy was assassinated, Johnson took over. He ran for election on his own right, and he could have run for re-election because he only served the last year, basically, of Kennedy's uh, term. So he could have run for re-election. He didn't because he wrecked his presidency over the Vietnam War. But Grover Cleveland, when he ran, won, lost, and then ran again, uh, he had the threat of re-election that he could hold over his political opponents, because there was no limitation then under the Constitution. Trump would be the first person that would get in, and they would know that he can't run again. Uh, I still don't think that would make him a lame duck. What I think it does, really, is the fact that DeSantis could run again and would want to run again means that he is going to temper some of the things he does with an eye towards re-election. You know, as there may be a thing that really needs to be done, that he won't do because he thinks that might hamper his ability to be reelected. Donald Trump would have no such restriction. And that is why the left walks in mortal fear of Donald Trump. And the more and more you see these 
fallacious, vindictive uh, criminal actions taken against him, these manufactured allegations against the man, the more you have to realize that they're doing it because they are in mortal fear. Any of these ridiculous arguments that they're doing this because they're trying to bolster Trump, because they know these things just make him stronger, because they want him to be the nominee, because they know he's going to be the easiest to beat, is complete nonsense. They know that if he gets back in there, heads are going to roll. The FBI is going to be ravaged from top to bottom. All of these bureaucracies are going to be ravaged from top to bottom. Investigations are going to be opened on a lot of members of Congress who are doing some very, very dirty and very corrupt things. And uh, the bell will toll for people. And he will do whatever is needed to to be done to right this ship. Nobody else will do that. Also, when your enemies are against a person, that should tell you that you should be for this person. Because if we allow the left to get away with this character assassination of Donald Trump, we will have surrendered one of the most significant powers that we have in this country. And that is the power for us to choose who we want our nominee to be. We shouldn't shy away from a nominee that we think is good simply because the left attacks him so viciously that we think now he's a liability. Why is he a liability? Because they say he's bad? Don't believe it. Donald Trump will get things done that Ron DeSantis couldn't even dream of doing. And anyone who thinks that Ron DeSantis is going to take the success that he's had in Florida, and transfer that to an equal amount of success in Washington is just playing games. So, Mr. Cuccinelli, you may be the former Virginia Attorney General. You may have been the acting Deputy Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. You may have had a lot of experience in government on the state, local, and national level. But in terms of political analysis and the will of the American people, you don't know Jack Ron DeSantis is a good man, and maybe someday he'll be president, but it shouldn't be in 2024, not as long as Donald Trump is viable. The only reason, and I say viable because they're going to try and damage him even more uh, to the point where they try and make him back down, which he'll never do. The only reason Ron DeSantis and these other people are getting into the race, people like Tim Scott, great man, they're jockeying for vice president, I believe, but the only reason why Ron DeSantis is getting into the race He's preserving a position in the event that the legal troubles of Donald Trump become insurmountable, even though they're manufactured, to the point where he can't run or decides he doesn't want to run so that he's there to step in. And if that should happen and Donald Trump himself decides he doesn't want to run, I'm not going to be disappointed in Donald Trump. I'm not going to blame him. Not many men could hold up to what he's held up to. He's a billionaire. He doesn't need this. He's doing it because he's a patriot. But if he's willing to stand and fight, I'm going to be there standing and fighting with him him and supporting him, and you should be too. If he decides he's had enough, then I will throw my support to Ron DeSantis, but not a minute before. It's Trump 2024, baby. He's the only one that can save the republic. And this republic is in need of saving. Please enjoy your Memorial Day holiday weekend with your friends and family. But before you fire up the barbecue, remember those people who died in order to keep us free 
so that you can have that barbecue and that time with your family. God bless you. God bless the United States of America. For the Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury.